Hello, listeners. Beyond the Mask, in conjunction with NBC RNA, is pleased to announce that listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how to submit them, go to our website. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, Sharon, welcome back to the studio. Uh, you know I love being in the studio. Yeah, I'm looking forward to today's show. It's the first uh, time we've done one of these in a while. I know. I drove two hours from Garner to get wow. up here to be with you. Look at you. I just want to know, would you do the same for me? Probably not. I didn't think I so. I mean, I'm honest about it, you know. So. <laughs> if I hadn't had Botox, uh, you'd see my eyebrows be going up now, right? <laughs> Well, you know, I'm excited today. We've got another one of our historical series podcasts. And, of course, our two favorite guests, Sandy Ouellette and Nancy Marie. Welcome, Sandy. Welcome, Nancy. Good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah. Uh, good to have you. Great information. Always great information. Oh, yeah. Amazing resource to have you, too. And we're glad you even, well, how long did you have to drive to get here, Nancy? Two hours. Two hours. Well, five me, minutes. Yeah, me, five me and minutes. you were good, weren't we, Sandy? <laughs> so, so <laughs> not Nancy, our fault they moved so far away. Is <laughs> Nancy right. and I are the are the real deal. That's I mean, right. Yeah, but this historical series is just one of my favorite things, anyway. Yeah, and we're getting a lot of traction on this. I, know. I think Tell people about are really what enjoying to you this that. morning. Yeah, I was uh, I was telling Sharon earlier, you know, that I was actually doing a presentation for a school. And they said that they were listening to the historical series, some of the financial ones, and some of the political ones. They're, they're and, their of course, the that. historical. Yeah, well, yeah, I said Did that Did you first. say that? Yeah. Okay. I was but, too uh, busy thinking about the school, and I think we should shout it out. <laughs> oh, no. I think I'll leave it. Uh, I can shout it out. <laughs> Go Duke. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. We'll, we'll throw it We out know there. that Wake already does it. All yeah. listens to all yeah. of our podcasts, That's too. That's true. And I think there's probably a lot more out there we just don't oh, know about. Oh, there's a so. lot. There's a lot of them. But Sharon, who are we going to be talking about today um, in this series? We're going to be talking about Gertrude Fife, which may be a name that a lot of people are not familiar with. But, you know, it's always important that people behind the scenes, just like behind every man, there's a good don't look at me like you're stupid woman oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well 
Well, you and know, so, I was just thinking as you were talking, they, you know, the Fife part's got me going. All I can think about is, you know, Barney. Oh, my God. She was not Barney Fife. She was not Barney Fife. But, you know, know. being so close to Mount Airy, that's that's the first thing you think of when you hear Fife, or at least I do. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. So it it is kind of funny. I'm going to digress for just a minute. So my little seven-year-old, her grandmother loves to watch, you know, Andy and Barney, and I love Lucy. And so she's going, my, my seven-year-old is now on to the black and white, I Love Lucy. Oh. So she is, she's like, can we get it on our TV, Dad? I, I, and, and she did this. She dropped her wedding ring in the barbecue, and th- she took part in the barbecue, and you know the one I'm talking about. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember watching that one. Uh-huh. And it's so funny, but she'll say, you know, that Andy, he's so funny and opie, and I'm thinking, what other seven-year-old's going to know this stuff? That's true. And the only way she knows it? That's because she watches it with her grandmother. That's a great story. And that's the same thing about this stuff, right, guys? Yeah. Because these students aren't getting this today. All right? right. And the only way they're going to get it is from YouTube. Not YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> that's right. Although you guys could be on YouTube. Because Are you you're... trying to say we're old? No, no, not at all. No. <laughs> not and live. You're both young. Not and live you're and get out of the room. You know I would never <laughs> say that, Nancy. <laughs> All right, so we're talking about Gertrude Fife, who uh, we'll kick it off with maybe the early part of her life and where she was born and so forth. And Nancy, we'll let you take the reins. Well, Gertrude Fife was born in Vermont in 1902, and she received her nursing training at Fanny Allen Hospital School of Nursing in Winoshi, Oski, excuse me. Uh, Vermont. I've never heard of that school of nursing. Yeah. How would you like to have said I went to Fanny Allen School? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Nancy, to your credit, I would have said Winooski. Yeah. Okay. Winooski. Winooski. Yeah. Ski. Polish. Polish. Yeah. Wonder if it still is around. Probably not. But anyway, not. she was a, a 1925 graduate of Lakeside Hospital School of Anesthesia in Cleveland, Ohio. And she was appointed a member of the staff at Cleveland Hospital following graduation. And she eventually became first assistant to Agatha Hodgins, who was the program administrator there. Wow. Okay. So, obviously, her and Agatha knew each other. She was a student, you know, of Agatha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Did I miss that? (laughs) And then then became her first assistant. Okay. Mm -hmm, Later on. What what does that mean? What does first assistant mean? Like assistant director. Okay. Yeah. So Uh just some different terminology. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't mean to interrupt. So, but, you know, she did contribute a lot to clinical anesthesia, I understand as well. Yeah, when you look at the anesthesia of the day, now we're talking about the late 1920s, early 1930s. So what did they have to work with? Well, they had oxygen, of course. We all have oxygen, mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. <laughs> and, um, and nitrous oxide, and they had ether, and they had cyclopropane and some of the other explosive anesthetics. So most of the anesthesia was given by open drop with spontaneous respiration. Mm-hmm. Well... The surgeons were getting more interested in doing uh, more complex thoracic procedures, cardiac procedures. And so they had to begin to think about, well, what about this mechanical control of ventilation? And so it was really at the Cleveland Clinic, through the work of Claude Beck, Matez, and Gertrude Feith Hospital in Cleveland, 
that they really began to work and originated a mechanical control of respiration. Now, it would be short-sighted not to say that others were also mm-hmm. working on that. For example, Helen Lamb, along with uh, surgeon Everts Graham, pioneered anesthesia machines and also paved the way for thoracic procedures. So you had one person trying to think about this positive pressure control of respirations and another one working on machines that could help that. And then there was Olive Berger, uh, along with surgeon Blaylock at Johns Hopkins, that was doing procedures for palliative cardiac shunts and repair of tetralogy of flow. And a little bit later, but not too long, and we'll, we'll talk about Olive Berger and um, Betty Lank, who was at Boston Children's Hospital. And Betty was the one that later showed that cyclopropane was the ideal anesthetic to anesthetize patients for tetralogy of fallot. So they were all doing things Mm -hmm. that came together and sort of contributed to the advancement of surgery, really. If it had not been for the ability to provide a different type of anesthesia, they would never have been able to do these intrathoracic and cardiac procedures. Now, I think so much, why cyclopropane? Why was that so good for TETS? Well, when you think about it, when they have TET spells, mm-hmm. it's, it's because they desaturate. Their right. systemic vascular resistance falls, and so they increase their right-to-left shunning. But if you've got something like ketamine or you've got something like cyclopropane that sort of supports the hemodynamics and increases systemic vascular resistance, it decreases that right-to-left shunning. And I don't know if they knew that at the time, but that had to be one of the reasons that this became so popular. Now, you guys both gave Cyclo. Yes, I did. Sandy did. I did. Didn't you at least give it once? Well, when I came along, we ended up having to use Cyclopropane because we still were required to do five true closed systems. Okay. And the only thing that the time that we had to do those closed systems was Cyclopropane. And so... I used it for my five closed systems, but again, going back to what Sandy said about cyclopropane, I did one teenage boy, and I can't remember now what he was involved in, but he was involved with some type of drug that was not a good drug, and we had to maintain his blood pressure. See, one thing that cyclopropane did was, instead of lowering your blood pressure, it raised Mm -hmm. it. And so we used cyclopropane on him. And also, when we were rotating to Wilkesboro, mm-hmm. we used it in um, OB. Yeah, that's where I used it, mostly uh-huh. in obstetrics. And it was said to be the best drug for patients in shock, mm-hmm. just because of what Nancy said. It supported blood, but much like we would think ketamine would do. Yeah, it kept your was heart it? rate up and your blood mm-hmm. pressure up. Okay. It kept both of yeah. them up. I had, a, I had a cousin who was two years younger than me and he died when he was 20 months old but he I don't know what kind of heart problem he had but my mother used to talk about him squatting all the time Uh so I'm sure he Uh probably Uh had tetralogy and the only thing they could do was to enlarge his VSD Uh and so they had gone in to do that and he died Uh right after um, his surgery yeah but you also have to remember it was explosive Mm. Mm mm-hmm but it did stay down toward the floor. And That's I'll, why all our plugs are up high. Yeah. But I also told the students, I tell the students that the, the reason everything's up on top of your gas machine isn't because that was the way it was planned to be. 
But when we first started, everybody having a monitor and they were little, mm-hmm. they had to put it on a pole five feet up right. from our gas machine. So everybody began to see how great it was to have all this stuff on top of your gas machine. Right. So yep. that's how all that came about. Yeah. Wow. Well, so, that's also the reason why the doors to operating rooms close the opposite way of what code is uh-huh. like all hmm. doors you've got to be able to push them out so in case uh-huh. there's a fire but um. they made the doors opposite in operating rooms and they're still like that today so if there was an explosion it only killed the people in the room oh yeah that's oh. pretty nice oh. of them isn't it? Yeah, that was real nice. <laughs> that's well, they, the reason why they, they have conductive floors too yeah, yeah so that's the reason why there are a lot of things in operating rooms that don't serve any purpose but it was all because of anesthesia and its flammability back in the old days so anyway in addition to clinical anesthesia gertrude feith was a charter member of the nana which later became in 1939 anna or aana and uh, she was appointed director of the university hospital of cleveland which was formerly Mm -hmm. lakeside hospital school of anesthesia in 1934 after retirement of agatha hodgins Agatha retired because of a pretty serious medical condition that we've talked about before. She had a a real massive uh, myocardial infarction and was pretty much uh, compromised after that. But anyway, Gertrude Fye served in that position at the school and as director of the University Hospital's department until her own retirement in 1946. So she was a teacher. She was an excellent clinician. And um, she was on the cutting edge of where anesthesia was going in the mid-20s to mid-1930s. Well, Nancy, why don't you tell us about her involvement with NANA? I know I've heard you say many times you're glad they changed the name to AANA because you didn't want to be a member of NANA. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) You don't mind being a NANA. You just don't want to be a member. I just don't want to be, I don't want to belong to NANA. (laughs) But she was. She was one of the 40 nurse anesthetists that attended the organizational meeting, which Agatha Hodgins was very prominent in putting that together. And there were 12 states represented there. And it was Gertrude Fife who moved to form a national association and to call it the National Association of Nurse Anesthetists. And it was seconded by another older or one of the Charter first members. kind of nurse anesthetists, which was Ada Alwyn. I've never heard that name. No, we don't hear too much about her, really, yeah. other than that one moment that in time. We well, all have every, a- everybody gets one moment. <laughs> <laughs> and one other thing that happened there, although it didn't happen, in re- I mean, it never did happen, was there was a decision made to seek affiliation with the ANA, or the American Nursing Association. Have we done a podcast on that and how that... It was with Agatha we talked about. We talked about it. Mm-hmm. That one's worth a podcast in and of itself. But we never did do that. But following adoption of the National Association of Nurse Anesthetists, Gertrude Fife, along with Vera Rice, and again, Ada Alwyn, were appointed to draft a tentative constitution and tentative bylaws. And it was drafted and adopted that same day. So. Can you imagine bylaws <laughs> and a in a court organization? Jesus, I can <laughs> remember us going to 10 and 11 there. o'clock at night over just a couple of bylaws at I the know. meeting, for God's sake. That's just because people wouldn't be quiet, Sharon. <laughs> so on March 12, 1932, 
Ms. Fife and others signed the Article of Incorporation of the National Association of Nurses and Anesthetists, and she was a listed member of the original corporation. So she was a charter member of NANA. Have we still got, you've probably seen the original document. I would assume it's in the archives. I would imagine it is at the office, yes. Oh, that'd be so cool. I mean, we've got the founding document with signatures of IFNA, Uh and that's in the archives. And so I'm sure that they have that. Oh, that'd be cool. That would be so cool. All right. I'm sorry. So um, in 1933, Gertrude Fyth, who again was first assistant to Miss Hodgins at University Hospital, assumed the administrative role of NANA. So it wasn't too long after the founding. You know, it was founded really around 1931 or so that Miss Hodgins stepped down due to health issues. And there was a monumental change that happened at that time, which probably has withstood the test of time. With this change, the notion of state registration and state supremacy, which was supported by Agatha Hodgins, disappeared, as did the push to strengthen the states at the expense of the national organization. Gertrude Feith believed in a national organization and a national supremacy, so to speak, Mm -hmm. over the states. And so that was sort of settled at that point. And so some early objectives under her leadership was to have a strong education and a sound organization. She solidified a plan to hold the first annual convention with the Convention of the American Hospital Association in Milwaukee in 1933. At that time, think about this, paid membership in NANA was 362 members. As opposed to 42,000 active members today Mm -hmm. and probably 50 or 55 members, uh, but very small. And one person that really helped sort of support and help this organization grow was John Mannix. He was assistant director of University Hospital Cleveland, and he was the one that wrote the original letter to the American Hospital Association about having the two groups meet together for that that meeting. And so some of the concerns were arranging a program, building up the membership so there would be a credible showing of nurse anesthetists at the Milwaukee meeting, and getting the Constitution and bylaws revised. Now, I can't find it in writing, but somehow I think when John Maddox, I get the feeling, saw those bylaws and Constitution that was drafted in a day, there was probably some deficits right? <laughs> yeah. In, in, yeah. in his mind. And uh, so he became very involved. And and so the other thing was um, they wanted to launch the association's educational programs. The focus was really on education. And I thought it was very, very interesting that a letter written to the president of the American Hospital Association by Mannix requesting affiliation stated, and I'll read it, Inasmuch as this group plays an important role in the present-day hospitalization, I believe it would be well if arrangements could be made whereby their meetings could regularly be held while the American Hospital Association meetings are in session. Of note, that continued from 1933 until 1974. When Goldie Brangham was president in 1974, the members with board direction voted to no longer 
meet every time with the American Hospital Association because the members wanted to go to other places mm-hmm. besides Chicago. Now, do you... Re- both of you guys would have went to some of those meetings, wouldn't you? Um, Y'all are not not really, not because I graduated age. in '69. Okay, and I guess I did go to some early meetings in '70, 70, '71. I do remember they were in Chicago. Right, but, but they were all in Chicago. Yeah, that, that's they were all because that's where the American Hospital Association okay. is. And um, so I guess in the early days when I went, it was that combined group, but that changed in 1974. Now. What was really interesting to me is a letter that was received from Bert Caldwell in 1933 in answer to, can we meet together? And um, he said the American Hospital Association would particularly welcome an arrangement of this kind and believes that it would have many mutual benefits, which members of your association and ours could enjoy. You are, of course, aware that a very large percentage of the hospitals are employing nurse anesthetists. This in spite of a very insistent movement to confine the administration to anesthetics to at least the Department of Anesthesia and every hospital under the control of the Doctor of Medicine. We are in no means in sympathy with this last-mentioned movement, and I'm sure when the hospitals would come to a very much better understanding as to the problem of anesthetists, if the two meetings could be held concurrently in the same city. So he recognized, even at that time, that there was a little rift in terms of what is anesthesia, is it a practice of nursing, is it a practice of medicine? And, of course, the physician anesthetists were saying it's a practice of medicine. Hey, Sandy, I was just thinking that, you know, here we are in 1933. If you think of the time period and you have these women, powerful, smart women, I just wonder what those anesthesiologists, physicians who were probably mainly male, how all that fit together Mm. in this time period. Can you imagine? I mean... You know, I know the personality of CRNAs today, and a lot of these ladies had very strong personalities. Yeah, um, and in that time, though, there were very few physician specialists in anesthesia. Ah, okay. So I don't know exactly when I read this, but uh, there was a time where the ratio of CRNAs to anesthesiologists was like 17 to 1. Mm-hmm. Wow. And there, was a, there were very few. And, mm-hmm. and uh, That was before World War II, I right, believe. Right, right. Yeah. But oh. the other thing is... Of the objectives of this new organization, there was one objective that eventually changed, and I think it's important to pay attention to that. Their sixth objective was to secure enactment of letters of laws to protect the profession's right of the association and its members. That was the sixth objective. And after some discussion, now listen to what it changed to. It didn't change, really. It just became less self-serving. So what it changed to is to promulgate the educational program with objectives of disseminating through proper channels the importance of proper administration of anesthetics to take proper steps to protect the public as well as to protect the professional rights of the association and its members. So they put the public in front of the rights of the members. All right, let me contextually, you've got me thinking now, Jeremy. So... We met with the American Hospital Association from 33 to 1974, but yet we have talked about this before. It was 1937 when the anesthesiologists come out and said that their goal was to get rid of us. Right. And that was apparently going on right now, according to to Bert Caldwell's letter, you know, mm-hmm. who was the uh, head of the American Hospital Association. He knew, even at that time, that there was fractions 
in the country mm-hmm. that really believed it was a physician's duty, it was a role of medicine to administer anesthesia. Well, the American Hospital Association clearly has been in our corner. And, you know, whenever the first opt-out started, when you go back and look at them, they were all generated through the American Hospital Association, usually, Mm -hmm. every single one of them. Because I asked Mitch Tobin back many years ago, where did that impetus come from? And it was always the hospital association. It was very interesting in terms of direct reimbursement. The American Hospital Association never signed on one Uh, way or the other. However, uh, with the payment schedule, they became involved. Okay. Well, that would make sense. 50% of their nurse anesthetists were employed by hospitals. They were very interested in this payment parity absolutely <laughs> absolutely it, well, it comes down to that dollar uh, right always always all right so nancy what what meeting did uh miss fife assume the presidency of nana uh she assumed the presidency at the first convention that was held in milwaukee which sandy's mentioned actually she was the second president because agatha hodgins is considered to be the first president she was served actually two years from 1933 to 1935, because she was reelected the following year. One of the things that she stated at this first meeting was the formation of the organization was for the purpose of elevating the standards of anesthesia. So when you look at this, education, again, was in the forefront of these early pioneers of the uh, National Association. So, and at the first meeting, accreditation of programs, and a national board examination for nurse anesthetists were really the prime topics that were talked about. And there was a divide, as Sandy said, between uh, state registration, which Agatha Hodgins wanted, versus national registration, which Gertrude Fife wanted. So all of that was being discussed. So again, at the advice of John Mannix, NANA bylaws were modeled after those of the American Hospital Association (laughs) and the Ohio Hospital Association because evidently they had some really good bylaws, you know, Mm -hmm. and had a really good model. At least in John Maddox's eyes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure they were, actually. um, An initial concern was who should be a member of the Nurse Anesthesia Association, and also what was the criteria for membership. And, you know, you look at that and you think, well, why in the world would that be such a big deal? But as you look at other things that were became obvious at that meeting, the problem was that at that time that no two schools of nurse anesthesia were alike. Mm. No one had ever defined what a qualified nurse anesthetist was. There were some schools who taught some some classroom. There were schools, it was all OJT. It was just all taught in the clinical area. You know, watch me do one, then I'll help you do one, and then you go to work, mm-hmm. you know. So an unwritten objective of the association, and you'll love this, was to, quote, separate the sheep from the goats and the field of nurse anesthesia. So which is better? Yeah, the sheep or the goats? <laughs> 
Well, I got news for you. Goats don't smell too good, okay? Okay. Well, you <laughs> okay. know what goat means in today's culture? Yeah, I was Greatest say. of all time. That, yeah. So if somebody calls you a goat today, because somebody called me that, I'm like, what the heck? It means greatest of all time. So <laughs> we better clarify well, for time, our sure listeners. They you, so you were donkey. not the greatest of all times if you were a goat, okay? <laughs> okay. So goats okay. smell. So, we got it. So the sheep are good. <laughs> um, now... Gertrude Fife was a real proponent, as was Helen Lamb and other people who attended this meeting, about talking about accreditation of nurse anesthesia programs. This was really a productive meeting. I mean, when when you go back and read about this meeting and you look at, this is 1933. Right. Yeah. And so... Right after the Depression, I mean... Uh, that the, yeah. And you were just getting, starting to get over the Depression or trying to get mm-hmm. over the depression but you know they it was talked even almost about, during it really yeah, yeah, it yeah. Was, yeah. um <laughs> you talked about education programs you talked about accrediting these programs national examination developing standards standardizing the programs they also talked about that they should visit all the programs and decide if they should be accredited or not accredited and the accredited programs were supposed to be on a list in with NANA so people would know who they were, which instructors were good, were to be put on a list and held there with NANA, and also the unaccredited programs. And the unaccredited programs were supposed to be told why they were not accredited. Mm-hmm. So there was just a whole lot of really meaty stuff that went on at this meeting. And so, like I say, a lot of this happened, but much of it didn't take place, though, for several decades. And the reason was World War II came into being, and the United States, of course, got into it in 1941. And so a lot of this had to be put on the back burner. But still, it wasn't forgotten. And these ladies were just really in the forefront of things. Now, let me go back to something because I'm still having a hard time wrapping my brain around the state versus federal and Fife was for federal, Agatha was for state. What does that really mean? Hodgins wanted nurse anesthesia categorized at the state, each state level. And she wanted nurse anesthesia to be in a separate category between medicine the board of medicine and the board of nursing Mm -hmm. okay now what fife wanted was she initially wanted and this did happen in this order a national examination okay because she felt that the national examination the thing that would have to follow that would be the schools would have to get together and present the same education or they wouldn't be able to pass this exam okay and so but it would have taken a lot of money and a lot of legislation to get a separate category for nurse anesthesia at the state level and also if that had happened and i'm getting ahead of myself in our little script here but if that had happened the case with Dagmar Nelson. Da- the Dagmar Nelson case would have been lost. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think I think the thing that was really determined at that point, we are licensed as registered nurses. Right. Mm-hmm. At the state level. Uh huh. 
but they were pushing for certification and accreditation schools, we would eventually be certified for our specialty right. in nurse anesthesia. And it was because we were nurses that we were allowed to administer anesthesia okay. as a due function of nursing right. in the Dagmar Nelson case. Okay. And Nancy's right. That's uh-huh. exactly how that was won. Okay. Gotcha. And you can imagine, oh, thank God for Gertrude Fife. Can you imagine if we had to fight with this, if it had been a state Every registration state. in all of our states Oh yeah. and all of the legislatures and Oh, my God. It would have been all different. All the exams would have been different, could yeah. have been different at the state so level. So basically what happened is you had the merging of education and practice, and you had to come up with a model right. that right. encompassed both of those right. things. Because now our practice is truly state by state. Our practice is. but And licensure as an RN. Exactly. In which, Jeremy, I don't know if you know this, but North Carolina had the first registered nurse in the country. Yeah. I did not know yeah. that. Yeah. Huh. I, and was she first board of nursing. Yep, wow. first board of nursing. Was that in 1903? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I thought it was. And Very she, early. the nurse that lobbied for that, didn't even have the right to vote. Wow. And lobbied for registration. What was so her that name? We, was it Welch? <sighs> Jesus, you would think I'd remember. Uh, but um, yeah, that actually that would be a good podcast too. It's really kind of cool. Here she couldn't even vote but yet thought that nurses need to be registered so that not everybody could be called a nurse. You wow. actually had to be educated. Wow. Pretty yep. cool, huh? That yep. is cool. Yep. Yeah. But let me say one more thing before you turn this back over to Sandy. But the outcome, one of the outcomes of this meeting was that Gertrude Five sent out a questionnaire to all of the existing programs to find out what they were teaching, what was their curriculum. So, you know, again, these ladies just really were on the ball with all of this. And eventually, pretty much, oh, yeah, and the first education committee was established at this meeting, too, with Helen Lamb as its chair. So, you know, you can see that these ladies, eventually, everything that they talked about at this meeting happened. So they were really futurist if you... You think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because some Given of this, forward period, thinking. Uh, because yeah. some well, of it, you know, the exam didn't happen till 46, and then accreditation 45. was was 55? 45. No, 45, and mm-hmm. then accreditation was in the 50s. 52. Yep. Yep. Wow. Okay, so Gertrude was really an organizer when you think about it. Now, just think for a minute. In January 1933, there were 100 members of the National Association, and they had in their treasurer $492.25. By September 33, there was 503 signed up with a treasurer of over 2,000. So they had increased their finances $1,574 in nine months under her leadership. And although the first meeting was held during the Depression in Milwaukee, 120 members attended that meeting. Wow. All right. Let's do some math here. All right, Jeremy, wake up. (laughs) (laughs) What are you trying to figure out? Well, just think about it. If 120 members showed up and there were only 503 members, Uh you're talking about 20% 20 of the membership showed up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about 
our annual meetings now are, you know, 3,500 people, and we have 50,000 men- members. I mean, just About doing. 3%, yeah. 3 or 4%. Exactly. And by the way, we're not in the middle of a depression yet. Exactly. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so, but it, I mean, it does show you who's doing the work, though, you know? Yeah. Well, but I mean, 20%. I mean, every state meeting, every national meeting, if we got 20% of our membership. Yeah, but you also think this is new and there are very I understand. few members. Yeah, I, mean, I know, I know, but it's still pretty cool. And they weren't making the kind of money they are now. And they weren't quite as spoiled as we are now. And, you know, so. and it only costs $5 <laughs> to be a member. Yeah, well, there you have it. Well, you got to look at what they made, too, because you're talking about what our membership uh, how much our membership, uh, you probably know this, Jeremy, how much our dues are relative to how much we make. Do the math, $645, and the average salary is 185000 0.3%. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that they organized at that meeting was membership categories. Mm-hmm. And they divided it from active membership to associate membership and honorary membership. So to be an active member, you had to have graduated from an accredited school of nursing. Remember, there was no accredited schools of anesthesia then, so it was nursing. And passed the required state board examination, so you were licensed then as a nurse. And you then had to be actively involved in anesthesia for not less than three years during that particular time and must be so engaged at the time of making applications. So you, there really wasn't that many requirements for the nurse anesthetist at that point, but that was active membership. Now, associate membership goes without saying any person not qualified for active membership, but it didn't have to be a nurse. It could be people that was just interested in the aims of the association and its development in hospitals, special clinics, or medical institutions. Any of those people could be then associate members of the organization now today we think of associate members being students right but certainly no hospital administrators or physicians mm-hmm. or anybody just because you have an interest in anesthesia you can't be a member of the ANA and then there was honorary membership and one of the things that would be good for these people is they would be exempt from payment of annual dues which Nancy said was about five dollars a year <laughs> but you know during the depression Right, that was a lot of money. Yeah, and it was during the meeting Agatha Hodgins was made the first honorary member and at the same time the honorary president. The motion which Carrie stated, realizing that Miss Hodgins had been a great incentive to us all and as this is a culmination of her life's work, aim, and interest in us, I recommend that by unanimous raisings of voice we elect Miss Hodgins to the honorary presidency of the National Association of Nurse Anesthetists. And the motion was carried. So she became that. Now, today, honorary members are people pretty much are non-CRNAs for right. the most part, aren't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. There's, there's probably less than 10 right. listed as honorary members today. One of your your husband. Yeah, my, my late husband, uh, Chow Maurice, won. He was also, the third person, right? Also, yeah, I think Rita so. is one. Right, Rita yeah. And John Maddox, I think, that we talk about okay. here that used to be at Cleveland Clinic. When I was on the board, I wasn't president then, but I was on the board. He received, I think, honorary membership during that time. So, hey, hey, Sandy, let me. Uh, I just want to interject real quick for you here. Uh-huh. So you said five dollars was the annual dues. Uh-huh. What do you think that's equivalent to? Just based on what inflation has been between 1933 and today, what should the dues be? 
Oh, this is going to be good. I know you figured it up. I have no idea. Just a guess. Sharon, what do you think? $1,000. Okay. Sandy, take a swag. Oh, I'd say about 800 Okay. Nancy, what do you think? 1500 $1,912. Oh, snap. So that would be what the That's membership... That's what the should be oh, based on $5 in 1933 See, I was, I was and the, the one inflation rate. Yeah. Wow. You were. Yeah. Well, we Think could start. That. We could start a movement. <laughs> Things hey. are pretty quiet right now. That's a pretty. That's. A, that's I'll tell you what. Ah, uh, yeah. Nineteen hundred dollars. Nineteen hundred dollars. Sirenace would. But that's what the equivalent wow. to five dollars was I, back I, then. I, I, I mean, you think about that's what I was saying in nineteen thirty-three. That is a very good point, Jeremy. Can you imagine? Yeah, we could some, all give more. Could some we? people well, weren't even making we money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of them weren't yeah. even making any money. I mean, that's amazing to me. That's that's, that's amazing. That's a pretty cool point. Well, I want that on the agenda for the next meeting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now that then, we, then we get together. I don't want to do this uh, virtually. Oh, hey, now please, won't that please be don't a say hot that I said this because I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. There might be so. some rifles that are brought. <laughs> oh my lord! Now that'll uh, be a contentious yeah. business meeting. Not that I would know anything about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry, Nancy. I didn't mean to get you off track, but I thought that was interesting. It so. is interesting. All right. Continue, Nancy, before you were interrupted. Well, we're still at the meeting in Milwaukee okay. in 1934. But the first meeting, they did establish some minimum standards for schools of anesthesia. And what was agreed upon was that the minimum, minimum length of the program would be four months. They would have to do a minimum of 250 cases and a member of minimum of 75 hours of classroom instruction. Now, they did not say what tuition was. So setting a standard of education for nurse anesthesia was, as I've said, everything about anesthesia was the keynote thing of this, this meeting. And one of the, there was a surgeon, which Sandy mentioned a while ago, Everett Graham, and he reminded the members, and I'll read this for you, in order to continue the excellent work which has been started, it is wise to have an organization such has been created in order to establish certain minimum standards of training and efficiency. It will be necessary for you leaders to safeguard your profession by recognizing the able and not recognizing the improperly trained nurse anesthetist. So he was encouraging them to separate the goats from the sheep, too. <laughs> <laughs> so in Ms. Fife's address at the meeting, she stated that a committee should investigate schools and recommend accreditation or no accreditation, which is, I've mentioned earlier. The associations also encourage establishment of, again, she was a big proponent of that national board examination for nurse anesthetists. And certification did finally begin in June of 1945. And oddly enough, she and Helen Lamb and another CRNA named Miriam Shoup helped develop that first exam that was given in 1945. And then accreditation began in 1952 and in 1955 the AANA was recognized by the U.S. Department of Health, Education and Welfare as the accrediting agent for the School of Nurse Anesthesia. One point to be made certainly about certification and also accreditation, this was all internal. 
this was all a part of the membership organization, mm-hmm. and it remained so until the mid-1970s mm-hmm. when our councils were formed. But I think here, since we just talked about membership, it's good to talk about that certification exam was a qualifying exam. We used to call it a qualifying examination because it was a qualifying exam for membership. Again, the sheeps versus the goats <laughs> here. And if you couldn't pass it, you're not going to be a member of this fine organization. But you had to be a member of the organization if you passed the qualifying exam. That's, right. That's so right. Well, yeah. I took, Had Sandy to and I both took the qualifying exam, and we were mandatory membership. And then it was decided, it was found to not be legal, that you cannot mandate someone be a member of an organization. And that's when I think they changed the name from qualifying exam in that when the qualifying well it, went it away. just changed the, when we we developed the councils mm-hmm. in 1975 76 because mm-hmm. research came out in 1978 so it was about 1975 that we had the council the three councils mm-hmm. really at that point and um yeah but and <laughs> there were many years that members didn't recognize that you could still be certified without right being a member of and the organization and that's the reason why right. a lot of employers pay dues because yeah. Yeah. You had to be a member of the association. Sounds to me like that law was probably enacted because of unions at that time. <laughs> uh, if you think about it, I mean, mm-hmm. logically. Well, yeah. I never give that much thought, but that probably does make sense. So I'm sure there's many other things that Gertrude Fife had her fingers in. And so is there anything else that you guys want to talk about, about things that she did? Because I'm sure she, she was definitely not well, a one-trick pony. No, she was definitely not a one-trick pony. Oh, by the way, I do know a one-trick pony, just so y'all know. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's sitting to your left. It's named Jeremy Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it is a male who was involved in financing that is a one-trick pony that I know. Interesting. <laughs> okay. That's an off-the-air conversation. I guess so. <laughs> well, at the time that Gertrude was president of the National Association, she also was acting director of University Hospital School of Anesthesia. She organized, well, obviously organized the association's headquarters at the University Hospital, and she was the editor of our first official publication, and it was published in 1933, and it contained information about the first convention. She also published the first issue of what was to become the American Association of Nurse Anesthetist Journal, and that also happened in 1933. And she served as a journal editor and chair of the publishing committee until 1944. Oh, my goodness. She also was secretary. Where did I Treasurer. 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 For 15 years. Yeah. Holy cow. Wait, now. Was Gertrude married? No, no, no. no, uh, no well, no. all of these women were not married, married yeah. except Helen Lamb. Uh, That's right. Uh, several we times that story. <laughs> went went for Some the money. She did, she did well. Helen Lamb's my hero. <laughs> 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 I'm marrying for money next uh, time. <laughs> but she also, at one point in time, was secretary, and it really was her secretarial help that helped her with the minutes, and she finally did get the hospital to pay the overtime that she was having to do to do those minutes for the national association so can you believe that that 
the National Association didn't pay it. Her hospital did. Wow. But there was something else. Oh, the other thing I wanted to tell you, too, since you mentioned Helen Lamb. Uh-huh. Helen Lamb and her husband, Walter Powers, mm-hmm. went to Cleveland and sat with Gertrude at her dining room table and developed the program for the meeting, for this first meeting that was held in 1933. Kind of sounds like the IFNA meeting where y'all got trashed. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay. All right. So she was um, very aware of the Dagmar Nelson case. It was in her uh, the third year of the uh, association's history and second year of her presidency. But her answer to these legal challenges, that was one of them, another one was happening in Indiana at the time, was high standards in education and certification of individuals through a national board followed by an accreditation program. So she thought education was the answer and quality providers. She also had to do some negotiating and she really brought the American Hospital Association in with us when some of these challenges were being inflicted. And um, so she had them write a resolution that basically said, be it resolved in the judgment of the trustees of the American Hospital Association, that any legislation which bars or tends to bar the use of properly trained anesthetists would be a mistake and a step backwards. Mm. So she really was forming this bond with the American Hospital Association, which was very good at the time. And they continued on, without getting into too much detail here, on their accreditation through the 30s. And as Nancy said, that wasn't really formalized until 1952. So it was after her retirement, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, she so she sowed the seeds. Then, um, yeah, she, she uh, had retired, I think, in 46. Okay. Wow. Now, we, this goes back to the disagreement between Agatha Hodgins and Gertrude Fife. Uh, again, again, you know, Gertrude wanted a national registration and Hodgins wanted a state. At this time in 1931, nurse anesthesia was beginning to come under fire. And the Attorney General of Indiana had rendered an opinion that the administration of anesthesia was the practice of medicine. Now, we know all about that in mm-hmm. North Carolina. Okay. Don't we Hodgins know. was really unwavering on her, what she believed, and I would say that Gertrude was pretty unwavering about what she believed. But Gertrude wrote Hodgins a letter, and in that letter, she expressed her opinion again that they needed uniform education and the best way to get there was in a national exam and through accrediting schools. And she also pointed out to Miss Hodgins that she had done some investigation and it would cost $500 to get a bill introduced in a state legislation. So they didn't have 50 states and I think it was... 48 but that would be 500 dollars times each state and they would have to have lobbying which would cost around 2100 dollars wow i should have been a lobbyist back then really (laughs) so it eventually moved forward the way that gertrude wanted it to move forward she thought that the greatest protection of nurse anesthetists was found in existing laws that's right uh, mm-hmm. covering the registration of nurses yes and, and then from a nurse you become a specialist mm-hmm. nurse a nurse anesthetist from an accredited school 
and then are, are ready to take the qualifying exam Actually, or certification exam. both of them were right. They just had different paths of getting there. Yeah, but if, if I had to vote, I'd vote for Miss Fife. Yeah, on that I, d- I, I do agree. I do agree. But, I mean, it'd be, in some respects, a national piece would be helpful now. We wouldn't be fighting state to state, but that's what the compact right. is supposed to right. do. So we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they were yeah, both another hundred years, you know. We'll see how it looks. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You might be here. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> but as, as Sandy said, Miss Fife held the position of treasurer. It was not a board position until much later. She held it for fifteen years, and then everything moved to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also, I mentioned earlier too that. She and Helen Lamb and Miriam Shoup helped develop the first uh, qualifying exam, which was given to 92 candidates in 1945. And at the 13th annual meeting, which was in 1946, Miss Fife was made a second honorary member of the association. Hmm. You know, that's interesting because if you look where we used to have the program books at every annual meeting Mm -hmm. and they list honorary members, they don't list Agatha Hodgins or Gertrude Fife as an honorary member. It's all these people right. that came after that were not uh, you nurses. Know what? You're exactly uh-huh. right. And huh. so, well, I think the beauty of it of them being honorary members at that time was they didn't have to pay dues, right? Yeah, yeah, they didn't have well, to pay dues. And yeah. I don't know when it changed. You know, once you're you've been president, you don't pay dues after you're president. And I don't know when that changed. I know you pay dues when you are president. Pay a lot of dues. I think well, that was <laughs> about the time of the mid two thousands. I think it was, was Chippus and, and all of them uh, when Brian they did Thorson. that study. Uh, yeah, Brian Thorson. Yeah. Around in there, mm-hmm. not but quite sure in it which was, year, it was but it was in there. Yeah, you're right was, about it. But Sandy, wasn't there another type of membership that came along that you could pay so much money, and you had a, there was another membership, and you could pay so much money, and you didn't have to pay dues right. after it's, that. Wait, you have it now, Emeritus. Emeritus. Once you retire as a CRNA, if you've been a member for at least 25 years of the AANA, you pay a one-time fee, and you still retain all your rights. And I, we I'm, still have that. I'm an emeritus member now. Yeah, but you're different because you've been president. Yeah, but but yeah, but you didn't pay dues anyway. Yeah, but the organization that pays our dues for us yes. would pay less. For oh, an emeritus member, I see, then they I would see. pay for a yeah. full-time oh. member. Yeah. So yeah, I'm yeah. cheaper than you are, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> you got to live a long time to get that emeritus. <laughs> well, actually, think about it. I've been an AANA member since, gosh. Do you want to tw- say this? No. Do you really no, want to say uh, this? Well, if you count while you're 92. Yeah. If you count while you're an associate member, I've been a member 30 years. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. 1990, I started school. So I've been a member for be coming up on 31 years. So if I retired given anesthesia, I could be emeritus member quit looking at me like that <laughs> i'm just surprised you said that on air it doesn't so. matter they know my facebook page has got my birth year on it a couple of miscellaneous points is um that gertrude was a recipient of the ana's award of appreciation in 1950 
and she received the Agatha Hodgins Award for Outstanding Accomplishments in 1978. So that was three, maybe three or four years after they started Mm -hmm. the Agatha Hodgins Award with Ruth Satterfield becoming the first recipient of that. And then Miss Fife died on October 6, uh, 1980. So two years after she received the Agatha Hodgins Award is when she died. Oh, wow. So she lived then from 1902, 1902 until 1980. Now, did either of you guys get to meet her? I did not remember her? meeting her. But whether she was there in person to receive the Agatha Hodgins in 78, I would have been at that meeting then. But at that time, you know, I was a young graduate in 69, and I didn't know all these people Mm -hmm. of great importance, you know, that were at the meeting. That was the first meeting I went to. It was in Detroit. Um, And, I mean, I don't mean this anyway, and I know y'all have gotten mad at me about saying this, because even at our state meetings, I would walk by you guys sitting in the bar, and all these students are going by, and I'm like, they don't even know who they're walking by, (laughs) that they're walking past you two, and they just think, oh, it's just Two ladies sitting in a Two bar. Two old ladies. <laughs> Come on, Sharon. You want to say it. <laughs> Two old ladies sitting in a bar drinking, you know, and they have uh, no idea. Yeah. No idea. And I'd like to think that this podcast has given you a whole new group of fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So. Well, you know, when you think about her life's work and the relevance of today, I talked to Patrick Downey right before I came about another issue. And Patrick, for the people that do not know, is sort of the glue or the cement mm-hmm. that holds the Diamond Club together, which is a organization of people who have served as president of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. But he said, when we were talking about different people, he said, you know, the person that never has received the credit she deserved was Gertrude Feith. And he probably and knew he was her. absolutely right in mm-hmm. that because um, she was sort of a shadow mm-hmm. of Agatha Hodgins, mm-hmm. who's known as the founder. But it was her educational push that strengthened this organization to the point that we now have what you say, 125 accredited programs, and we have a national certification exam. And who would have ever thought that we would have recertification that started in mm-hmm. 1978? But it was all built on this framework. Wow. That That's she, a visionary. Yeah, that she, she had a, a vision, unbelievable, and it has sustained us yeah. throughout our years. And we're very close to celebrating our 100th anniversary, mm-hmm. 1931 to 2031, not far off. Wow. Something to endure, anything to endure that long. Yeah, so it's 90 years. That's pretty cool. Now, speaking of Patrick, Patrick lives in Wisconsin, and he really doesn't travel right now. And so we are going to interview him via Zoom. And my son-in-law, who's a CRNA, lives four hours south of him. And so I talked to Patrick, and Grant is going to go up and help him with the zoom and get him set up so that we can do that and what we need to do is ask him questions about all these people because he would remember gertrude yes he would remember all of these people we might have to break that podcast down into several sessions but i told my son-in-law i said you have no idea what an incredible opportunity this is for you to sit in the same room with this man yes it's amazing so anyway I digress. So, you want to wrap this up? 
Jeremy. Yeah. Nancy, Sandy, thank you as always. You certainly welcome. Did a great job. You always put these things together, and we learn all kinds of interesting facts about about these great leaders throughout the industry of uh, nurse anesthesia. So, Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out where everywhere you get your podcast: Stitcher, Apple, Spotify. See, look at you. Look at that. (laughs) You know all these. I like that. Yeah, but leave us a review. Only if it's positive. That's right. For Jeremy Stanley and... Sharon Pierce. Until next time. It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, president of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and president and founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.